All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Looking at the Christian's acceptable worship, continuing on with that theme, today beginning with mutual dependence. Acceptable Christian worship is what pleases God. And we have already learned that the reason all believers are to offer up spiritual sacrifices like, of course, the fruit of the lips and giving of thanks and sharing, and the reason spiritual church leaders and congregation are to harmonize with one another is because it pleases God. And what pleases God is essentially acceptable worship. Now, anything that does not please God is evil. Anything that does not please God is evil. There's a simple definition of evil. It's the little twist of what God has designed things uh, in things so it brings glory to his name. That little twist is evil. So today in our passage, we come to the thing that is most important for church leaders and congregation alike. And it surely is pleasing to God. It is the very thing that brings to light our dependence as Christians. And our two inseparable spiritual responsibilities. These responsibilities we must never underestimate or carelessly lay aside and say, well, what are they? Uh, number one is to attend earnestly to the Word of God. Why? Because through the Word of God, God speaks to us. And secondly, to engage earnestly in prayer, because this section we're looking at now is about prayer. And of course, in prayer, we speak to God. So they go together. In His Word, He speaks to us. In prayer, we speak to God. So the great need for, the, for church leaders is to be supported by the prayers of their sheep and for church leaders to earnestly support the sheep in prayer. They both go together. And they should always remain of the highest importance. And I believe this is where Satan attacks the in the church he gets us and convinces us that we are too busy to pray uh, that we don't know how to pray that we just can't seem to make it to prayer uh, and, and so that's the great attack to keep God's people from praying for one another to keep pastors from, for, from praying for their sheep and to keep the people from praying for their leaders so why should we do that? Why should we engage in this? Well, for this reason. So our work for Christ can be effective. And when it is effective, it is aided and is supported by mutual and delightful prayer and mutual loving obedience to the Word of God. So the author of Hebrews at this point in the message is humbly requesting prayer 
Look what he says in verse number 18 and 19. It says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this so I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, it says there simply in verse number 18, pray for us. Now, there's a little bit of a problem here because actually in all the translations, uh, some translations put a period after pray for us, some put a semicolon, some put a colon, some put a comma, all right? And, and that's, see, there's a problem. Though, of course, there's no problem in the Greek because there is no uh, punctuation. But in English or in our language, there would be. In fact, the King James puts a colon. Uh, the New King James puts a semicolon. The NIV puts a period. And, of course, the NASB, which I'm using, puts a comma. Now, the reason could be that the author is using another imperative. And it could read, pray for us, period. But it could also mean that there is an, he's using a very unusual reason for the prayer request. In fact, look what it says. It's, it says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desire to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And then he says, the prayer request is so I can be restored to you. But it's really unusual how he puts that. Because he, he's making a statement before he's actually asking for the request. But I thought about that for a while, and I kept looking at it and looking at it, and I said, there's a reason for this, the way he writes this here. And so I want to investigate it. It's like saying here in this passage this. Look what he says. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience. It's like saying this, I'm confident about what happened on the inside. That's what he's saying. You say, well, what does happen on the inside when one comes to believe in Christ? What happens on the inside? Well, they, they share in the work of Christ by which their consciences have been cleansed. You see, here is one of those statements in the Word of God that display a person's assurance of not only their position before God, but the difference that has taken place inside of them. That they're aware of. That is, their conscience is not tormented or guilty or dead are experiencing on the inside rest peace and life so look how our passage reads pray for us for we are sure that we have a good conscience now, someone may say, well, that sounds arrogant. 
seems like an arrogant statement. No one can really be sure about such things. Now that does raise a few questions that I believe need some investigation. And I think the questions could be this. Questions like, what does it mean to be sure you have a good conscience? How about that question? And then a second question would be, what does a good conscience have to do with prayer? Those are the questions that I, would answer this, I want to answer this morning. Because remember, we're talking about acceptable worship in this section of Scripture, and that includes our approach to God. This means if anyone is going to approach God acceptably, they must have a good conscience. Now, to investigate this, we have to, uh, I'm going to try to stay within the, in the, the integrity of the book of Hebrews. And learn, turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. Where back there we saw how the worshipers would come and bring their gifts and their sacrifices before God. Just like they were required to do. Yet these gifts and these sacrifices could not make the people perfect on the inside. In other words, these sacrifices were powerless to remove sin and guilt. You know, so when we come to Christ, when we become believers, the Lord really does a work on the inside. That's how you yourself and myself know something has happened. I didn't just stop this habit, bad habit in my life. I didn't just stop drinking. I didn't just stop taking drugs. I didn't just stop doing this particular sin. Something happened inside me when I came to Christ. I'm different because I came to Christ. My whole life is different. The way I think is different. The way I look at the world is different. The way I look at people is different. Everything is different because I came to Christ. So in verse number 9 of chapter 9, it says this. Which is a symbol for the present time, accordingly... Both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. See that word there again? So that in the end, the worshipers experience no abiding rest, no abiding peace, but continually live with a guilty conscience. Now, just to refresh your memory a, a little bit, the term conscience can be defined in this way. It is another, another way you can refer to conscience is really the soul, the conscious part of the soul. And so the soul, as distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the good and shun the bad. That's what the conscience is, right? Everyone has a conscience. doesn't matter who you are, where you live. 
you have a conscience. God placed that conscience there. And it is something in which when you do something bad, then you're condemned in your conscience. And when you do something good, you are commended in your conscience. Everybody knows about that. doesn't matter who you are. You know about it. So the conscience... that is guilty is a soul conscious of sin they've done something wrong they broke a certain law they have offended their creator God sin of course is a word often used in scripture that gives the picture of a prisoner who has been taken captive and it is dominated by its power sin is it is said in Scripture to dwell in us. So basic is the hold of sin over man that sin is not merely an external power which exercises sway over a man, but has got into the very fiber and center and heart of his very being and occupies him like an enemy occupies a country. Romans tells us in the Word of God, it shows there a, cl a close connection between the law of God and sin. And the law teaches what sin is. In fact, Paul wrote to the Romans, and he says, because of the, by the works of the flesh, uh, law, no flesh will be justified in this sight. And through the law comes the knowledge of Sin. So once there is law, then there is also the knowledge of sin. And then Paul really nailed it in chapter 2, where he says, in, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. There's a sense of a biblical definition of, of the, of, a, of the conscience, and who better to define the conscience than God himself who created it? So the conscience is that which bears witness to what is right and pleasing to God and what is wrong and evil. When one does wrong and sins, they feel guilt. Some people walk around with guilt just piling up year after year their whole life and they're guilt-ridden. They don't know what to do with it. They have no clue what to do with it. And their conscience is just weighed down. You hear sometimes people say, when I trusted Christ, this weight fell off me while they're talking about guilt. They said, my guilt that I had is gone. It's gone. See, so, maybe this is a good place, I thought, to identify six characteristics of what a good conscience actually is. Because it's, it is the only kind of conscience that can approach God acceptably, and that's a good conscience. 
And the point of the passage is God wants you to know you have one. Do you have a good conscience? Well, after today, you should be able to say yes or no. Let's look at the first thing. A good conscience is one that comes by that comes by Jesus' superior sacrifice. Now, look what it says back in Hebrews chapter 9. We're looking at there, verse number 13. And by looking at this passage, I want you to say, think of this, that, see, you cannot acquire it on your own. Someone has to acquire a good conscience for you. So the gifts and the sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament order by the worshiper, which could purge only the flesh but not the conscience. In verse number 13 of Hebrews 9, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Now, it could only be removed externally. Under the old covenant, in this passage of Scripture, the worshiper... They were benefited in a personal way that when they followed the procedures and for cleansing and offered the correct sacrifice, then the sacrificial blood of animals did remove their defilement and set them apart as holy unto the Lord. But in the, at the end of verse number 13, it says, only for the cleansing of the flesh. In other words, it did not free the conscience from the dead the guilt of all evil deeds done by a particular person. See, the conscience needs a far greater cleansing to put it to rest. And of course, a good conscience only comes to us by the Lord Jesus Christ who offered the sacrifice that would take care of a bad conscience an evil conscience, a guilt-ridden conscience. And so, a second thing is a good conscience is one that has been cleansed by Jesus' superior sacrifice. Chapter 9, verse number 14, when I look there, now, now listen, the lesser sacrifice is the blood of bulls and goats, according to the passage, that was limited. The greater sacrifice is the blood of Christ, which is complete. The solution to an inner defiled conscience is found in Hebrews 9.14 where it says, how much more, there's the greater, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience. So it is the blood of Christ that cleanses from all external and internal uncleanness and defilement, which incurs guilt, and then cleanses your conscience. So it is the blood of Christ that is God's answer to man's disturbed, troubled, weighed-down conscience. So if you have a disturbed conscience, well, the law of God is working on you, prompting you through Scripture to receive God's remedy. And God's remedy is, of course, Jesus Christ. The person who comes to Christ can 
or she is forgiven. That Christ sets us free from the penalty and the power of inward sin. Therefore, that Jesus' atoning sacrifice provides inner purity as well as outward external deliverance. So the believer who is given the ability to believe in Jesus by faith and then set free from the slavery and the dominion of sin is cleansed internally of a guilty conscience. So a good conscience is one one that's cleansed by the blood of Christ. Thirdly, a good conscience is one that has been cleared of all dead works. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews 9. Cleanse your conscience, it says, and from dead works. Now, dead works, what are they? You know what dead works are? This this is my definition of dead works. Dead works are your good works. In other words, dead works are all the formal, empty, false, legal observances, self-invented works whereby you and I sought to stand before God. The things that we use to try to please God. All the stuff that you and I tried to do to consider ourselves to be a good person and then to consider ultimately to be acceptable to God. Those are dead works. Because there's nothing you can offer God. Even if you define your own works as good, they're still dead before God because you're still dead after you offer them. Why? Because you still have a defiled conscience. You're still riddled with sin. So, But dead works just further defiles a person. They, dead works provides no ability to cleanse the conscience, gives no power to enable a person to obey God rightly, no power to create a willing heart to serve God. Some people hope they that having done such things that their good deeds would outweigh their bad and that they would be accepted before God based on their merit. Well, that just further defiles a person because a person thinks that's self-salvation, autosotirism. You're trying to save yourself by what you do. See, a conscience could never be cleared of dead works by you offering dead works. You will remain dead and your works will remain dead because you are really offering it up to an idol of your own creation in your mind. Even if you call that idol Jesus, it's still dead works. It provides no cleansing at all. So a good conscience is one that has been cleared of all dead works. Fourthly, a good conscience is one that no longer has consciousness of condemning sin. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 1 and 2, it says here, For the law, since it has only a, sh- it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. And then verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to offer? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, 
would no longer have the consciousness of sins. In other words, because a believer has a one-time effective sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and that sacrifice is unrepeatable, and that sacrifice is efficient and not deficient, then Christ's superior sacrifice has removed all condemnation from the conscience. And so, therefore, a person is free. In fact, in verse number 1 of Hebrews chapter 10, there's a little phrase that says, can never, right in the middle of the verse, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, meaning that these sacrifices offered, even the prescription that God gave to offer uh, those sacrifices are, had no ability in its effectiveness. A genuinely effective thing does not need to be repeated. Repetition is proof there remains a deficiency in the sacrifice. That's why it's said in Scripture all the time, Jesus died once, he died once, he died once, he died once. Why? Because his sacrifice was so efficient, it never had to be repeated. There was no deficiency at all in his sacrifice. So that means that when a person understands that and they receive Christ, that means that, listen, these are, old, ineffective, repeatable sacrifices can never purify people's souls. And in fact, it says there in, at the end of verse number 10, they were not able to make perfect those who drew near to God. Never were, was it able to do that. If it was able to make them perfect, then two things would have taken place. And that's found in verse number 2 of Hebrews 10, that the sacrifices would have stopped. Right? It would have been finished. Why? That sacrifice would have been totally efficient. No more need for sacrifice. It's done. You're cleansed. You have a clean conscience. It's cleared of dead works. And therefore, you are, are saved and made right with God. Secondly, the worshipers, the worshipers, those who came continually to worship, would have no more consciousness or sense of sins. And it says in the end of verse number two, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. It proves the sacrifice's inability to cleanse from sin. And when I was back there preaching on this passage of Scripture, there was a particular ability that these sacrifices did do, especially on the Day of Atonement. What did it it do in verse 3? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. You know what it did? It reminded people, it reminded worshiper that he or she was not purified, that he or she's sins still stand and stood between him and her and God, and so they could never get farther than the next year's Day of Atonement. And so it was just a vicious cycle over and over again. But it was a shadow. It was a picture of what Christ would do. It was the hope that what I'm doing now finds its fulfillment in Christ. And those who did it then and did it by faith, when Christ died on that cross, they too were forgiven of everything and made right with God. So Scripture has just established the inability of the law and its prescribed sacrifices to reach God's intended goal for His children. And that's perfection. 
That means a far different and vastly superior sacrifices, sacrifices needed, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ. So see, the conscience is really important when it comes to prayer. You have to know you have a good one, a cleansed one, a cleared one. One that knows that you're not condemned by your sin because of the effectiveness and the extent of the death of Christ. So you come with confidence like that when you know those things. You can come with surety when you know that. So what does a good conscience have to do with prayer? Well, a fifth thing would be this, that a good conscience is one that may come before God with bold confidence. In Hebrews chapter 10, a good conscience has overcome three main obstacles to prayer. And what are they? Well, when I was back there, we looked at them in verse number 21 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, in other words, there that the obstacle was, wait a minute, we are coming before the very presence of God in prayer. We are coming to the house of God in prayer. We are not just talking to anyone, we're talking to God. And of course, Hebrews also said that our God is a consuming fire. So the one with a good conscience, what kind of person can enter into the house of God and into the presence of God in prayer is a person who comes through Christ's sacrifice, who comes cleansed, who comes cleared of dead works, who comes forgiven of all their sin and guilt. That is the person who can come and pray before God. A second obstacle that is overcome by a good conscience is found in verse number 22. It says, Let us draw near with a sincere, sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The second obstacle is an evil conscience. Well, who has an evil conscience? You and I had an evil conscience. Everyone has an evil conscience. Because anything that doesn't please God is evil. And we do a lot of things that don't please God, right? Especially when you don't know these things. All you do is do things that don't please God. So the amount of things you do that don't please God is so great you can't even number them after a while matter of fact they're so great you don't even remember them but god does so the obstacle of an insincere heart you see we know all about this because when we talk to others we can often justify our words or actions before people but the moment we come before God in prayer, our consciences begin to speak to us. We can no longer defend ourselves. All we see is our insincerity. Ever come before God and feel your insincerity? See, unless a person deals with conscience, he or she doesn't really pray. Like the psalmist said 
if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But a good conscience overcomes coming into the presence of God because they have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who has entered in before them as their atoning sacrifice. Also, they overcome, we overcome by a good conscience this insincere heart because the Lord has cleansed our heart and has given us a clean heart. And of course, this leads to a third obstacle in verse number 22, and it's this the obstacle of the sense of uncleanness. He says at the end of the verse, and our bodies washed with pure water. When we come to prayer, we sense the pollution of sin. We, we feel dirty because of sin. We, we feel the sense of total unworthiness when we sin. Matter of fact, Christians feel that even more but we don't lose our confidence or our boldness because we already know what Christ has done. So that prevents us from going on and on and on in our sin because we know that displeases my Lord and I don't want to do that. And so you don't let your sin become a habit or a habitual pattern in your life. You cut it off. You put it to death. You confess it to Christ. You bring it under the blood. And so therefore you are forgiven and you sense that forgiveness and you, you grow in gratitude and praise to God because you know you didn't deserve it. Every time I bring one sin to the Lord, I don't deserve to be cleansed. But I can get up and I can sense because of the truth I know from the Word of God that I am made clean and worthy. So how is it that a person riddled with an evil conscience can come into the presence of God? Well, we, I think we, we need to realize these obstacles and we need to overcome them. And we do so by a good conscience. So this is how to approach God in the way he requires. And here are some essential practices so we can really pray with confidence. Because I tell you this, he's describing here the kind of heart that draws near to God in prayer. And I'll tell you that it is not a proud heart that does that or it's a self-sufficient heart that does that or an insincere heart that does that, that God delights to approach him, but it is a good, sincere conscience. And in fact, in some ways, these are describing a good conscience. In verse number 22, he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart. So there it is. What is a sincere heart? A sincere heart is literally a true heart. Let's come to God honestly. Let's not try to cover our sin, push aside our sin, uh, put a weight on confessing our sin or any of those things, but let's just come to God honestly with a sincere heart, a true heart, an honest heart. A heart that is not fictitious but real. A heart that is not counterfeit but authentic. A heart that is not thinking just imaginary things but is without any kind of fakery. A heart that is not simulated but 
is the real thing, a heart that does not pretend, but is without hypocrisy, a heart that is just honest with God. About what? About your sin. About what you know, about what you're doing in your life. So believers, according to our text, are to draw to God with a true heart, a sincere heart, which assumes that we are to be aware of what kind of heart that we come to God with. There's an understanding about what's happened on the inside. So we have have some level of discernment concerning our own hearts. You can't meet with God with an insincere heart. The point is, you can fool some of the people some of the time, right? But you can never fool God. So according to Hebrews, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. So, you come to God in a new way. Not in an old way, in the old dead works way. You, you come to God, you don't come to God through ceremonies or rituals anymore. The new way is the way God has planned and that there's no real access to God but by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ because he alone answers the problem of a guilty, polluted, evil conscience. Right? He's the only one who answers that question. See, so a good conscience has a true and honest heart before God in prayer. Also, a good conscience, again, has a cleansed heart. In verse 22, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It is the heart that has been cleansed on the inside, that Christ is the end of the law, so the Lord can no longer condemn me. How? Well, by his all-sufficient and totally effective sacrifice where Christ bore my sin and my condemnation and by his blood washed my evil conscience. So if the law is satisfied because Christ bore our sin and guilt, well then, my conscience is clean. And really uh, satisfied my, my feelings of being dirty and unclean because I overcome those things by the blood of the Lamb. We are overcomers. See, so a good conscience is not only have an honest heart, but it has a cleansed heart again. And then, so to know that your heart has been comprehensively cleansed by the blood of Christ inside and out, And our bodies, like it says in verse 22, washed with pure water, meaning that the outward cleansing can cleanse. There's there's no outward cleansing that can cleanse real pollution of sin. It's only by the blood of Christ that we can be cleansed both on the inside and the outside. And even when the old enemy of our soul comes against us, I can point the devils to my Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen and exalted and coming again. And I will proclaim with confidence that if God is for me, 
well then, I have nothing to fear even the devil himself. Because he will stir up all the guilt of the past and make it just as real as it was just happening. He's able to do that, and he does it very well. See, unless you know that you have a good conscience because of what Christ has done on your behalf, he can't get a foothold when you know that. Matter of fact, there's nothing that can get a foothold when you know that. So here's really the bottom line. True believers with their doctrine with their understanding of what Christ has done, can enter with confidence into God's presence and come with freedom of speech and courage to express their prayers to God on their own behalf and on the behalf of others. That's why prayer is mutual. You pray for me, I pray for you. But see, the precursor is I have a good conscience let me pray for you why do you have a good conscience because of what Christ has done right isn't that doesn't get that give you a level of boldness and sure uh, assurance to do what you need to do as a believer also they know how to regularly draw near to God in prayer with their honest and cleansed heart, and they are sure that they have a good conscience. Now look back at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, one more time, because I want you to notice another thing that's linked back to our text that I started in Hebrews 13, and that is this, that all this leads us to outward service of God. Look what it says in Hebrews 9, 14, the last part of the verse. Well, let me read the whole verse. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, look what it says, to serve the living God. So that means this, that a good conscience leads to consecrated service. That the reason why Christ cleanses me of all these things, the reason why the Lord brings me into a position before Him in which I am cleansed in this way and made right with Him is to serve Him while I'm here. That's what it does. It brings me to serve Christ while I'm here. In fact, if you look back to chapter 13 where we started off in verse number 18, you and I receive this new life that restores our fellowship with God so that we can exchange uh, and engage in energetic service to Him. And with that in mind, in verse number 18, it says this, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience. And then notice, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things means my good conscience my cleansed conscience has now affected my behavior it has affected my desire my desire what do i desire to do now 
So we're looking at inward cleansing and outward service. Someone who's now really serving God with a good conscience. Know why they're doing it. For he says here, listen, their desire has become comprehensively changed about how and where they want to live their life. I don't know about you, but that's what he puts in here before he actually asks for his request. He wants to let his people know, I have a good con- I'm sure I have a good conscience. He's sure of what he believes. He's sure of his relationship with God. He's sure and has boldness that when he prays to God, it will be effectual. The effectual prayers of a righteous man availeth much because he knows who he's coming to. And then his desire is to conduct himself honorably in all things, not just in a few things, not just in things that they choose, in all things. If this passage of Scripture doesn't drip with real conversion, I don't know which one does in the book of Hebrews, even though many of them do, he's concluding here what real believers are. And then they're free to what? Go serve God, which they were not free to do before. They're free to serve God. They want to do it. Their desire in their heart is to serve God. They turned the Thessalonians from idols to what? To serve God the living God, and to wait for Jesus. See, that's what a believer is. So how is it that we can ask for prayer, pray for others, serve God with such confidence and assurance? How is it? It's only because of this. Number one, you have peace of conscience. There's nothing to condemn you anymore. Number two, you have access to God through Christ. There is nothing to prevent you from enjoying God's presence anymore. You have new desires to serve God, which you never had before. You have no fear of hell because there is nothing any longer that can send you there because Christ has been punished in your place, and therefore justice cannot touch you again. And you have the expectation of heaven. Sudden death is sudden glory. Heaven is an open door to you. So, what are we to do? He's laying down the importance of prayer. You can't lay this aside. You can't treat this as something secondary. This has got to be first and foremost. The most we can do for one another is pray. And sometimes it's the last thing we do, if we do it at all. And then by the time we get to doing it, you're so exhausted and tired and beat up 
that you can't even mumble the words out. You know why? I know that. You know why I know that? Because I've been there. I've been there. But brethren, if anything is going to take place in your life, in my life, and any service is going to be any have any effect, we must pray for each other. And we must take it serious. This next coming year is an opportunity to make some changes in this area. And I believe we need to. You know, we do have a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night in our church. We do. And I know everything in the world is going to prevent you from being there. From you being tired, to you being caught in traffic, to you being, have demands on you that are over the top. I, know, I realize that. And we can do other, other things to pray for, pray for each other, but I've always had a prayer request in our church from, from a long, long time ago that our prayer meetings would be attended much better than they are by people who actually want to be there and by people who know why they're there. And just to pray. But mutual, delightful prayer starts with a good conscience. Do you have one? Have you come to Christ for him to give you one? Have your desires changed because of your good conscience to want to serve God wherever he'll have you serve? Has he changed your desires to want to pray? In fact, this was getting the author so excited that this is what his prayer request is in verse number 19. I urge you, urge you, all the more to do this. To what? To pray for us. I urge you to do it. To pray for us. Why? So I may be restored to you sooner. So it seems that the author was part of this congregation at one time. Something pulled him away. And he's, he couldn't get there to preach this message because Hebrews is really a preached message. It's a homily. It's, it's, it's one that was, which should have been proclaimed. Instead of preaching it, he had to write it out and send it to them. He says, I, I couldn't be there to see you face to face. But man, I, I want to come to you. Even after I send this letter, I want to come to you. So I pray that you, I could be restored to you sooner than I think and see you face to face and rejoice with you because... That's what he wanted. That was his desire. That was his prayer request. Why? Because he knew that what he knew could benefit them and their prayers would benefit him and what they knew would benefit him because that's the body life of the church, right? Building up one another. So that was his request. That's it. All this for that request. Of course, he's going to get to what he prays for them. But I'm not going to look at that today. 
does he pray for them? We'll look at that in the weeks to come. But I just pray this morning that you would really take prayer this year serious. I can beg you. I can write letters to you. I can send emails to you. I can text you, uh, you know, 15 times on a Wednesday to try to make it, to alter your schedule to do it. We can organize different prayer groups. We can do all kinds of things so everybody's praying. We could do that, but you've got to want to do it. You've got to get through the wrestling part of getting to prayer. And then let's offer up to the Lord only things he can answer. Let's do that. Can we do that this year? Can we pray for that this year? Can I know we can. But I, I, it won't be a reality until you, at, we actually get together to, to see it happen. So let's pray. Right, let's pray right now. Lord, I, I pray. I prayed this morning. Lord, you're, you're so good for, for doing this to us. You're so good, Lord, for working out such a great plan of salvation in which I can know I have a cleansed conscience and I can know my standing before you and that I can come before you with an honest heart. I can know that and I can be assured of that. How many people could know that? I can know that my guilt has been taken care of by Christ. My guilt that condemns me. But Lord, I do pray. I pray for myself and your people. I pray, Lord, that this year would be a year that we take more seriously than ever the discipline of prayer. We've already had our obstacles to prayer removed, so any other obstacles must be our own, must be placed there by the enemy. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to juggle schedules and responsibilities so at least, Lord, a certain time during the week that we can get together and we can pray with each other. We can pray for each other. And we can seek your face out because we know from the Word of God that is acceptable worship and it is pleasing to you. Oh, Lord, Make us people who please you. And I thank you, Lord, for what you'll do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.